Hello, and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from its rich past. I'm your host, Laura. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Thank you for joining me today for part four of Boss Tom Pendergast's epic saga of Dominion in Kansas City. Oh god, I swore this would be the last episode, and I really thought it would be, but it turns out there's actually going to be five episodes on Pendergast. If this is your first time listening, hello and welcome, but please pause here, go back and listen to the rest of this series. That would be the Prohibition episode, and then Pendergast's part Parts 1, 2, and 3. Alright, so previously on Homegrown KC, Pendergast's policies made Kansas City a wide-open town during National Prohibition. The continuous flow of money and the 10-year plan allowed the city to prosper during the Depression. Today on Homegrown KC, Pendergast's reign, like all great things, must come to an end. Alright, let's see, where were we? Ah, the pit of despair. Just kidding. But... Let me take this moment to remind you to wear a mask in public. I actually have two new side characters to introduce to y'all. Guy Park, who I name-dropped in the last episode, and Robert E. O'Malley. So let's start with Park. I have very little information on him, nothing about his childhood. He was born in 1872, just a little ways north of Kansas City in Platte City. He studied at Gaylord Academy, I'm not sure if that's a college or a high school, but I'm leaning towards high school. And he earned a law degree from the University of Missouri in 1896 at the age of 24. He was an attorney in his hometown beginning in 1900, and the city's prosecuting attorney from 1906 to 1910. Eventually, he became a Platte County judge in 1923, and he served in that position until he was elected governor of Missouri in 1932. Now, in 1932, a man named Francis Wilson had actually been voted the Democratic nominee for governor, but he died suddenly in October. So Pendergast selected Judge Park to replace him. And remember, at this time, Park, um, sorry, Pendergast held a lot of power statewide. So it was really easy for him to convince the election committee to accept Park as Wilson's replacement. Uh, apparently, the two men were longtime allies. I didn't see anything in my research that said that Park was an official member of the machine, but again, that could just be because I couldn't find a lot of information on him, period. Uh, They did favors for each other in the past, including Tom helping him get elected judge. So, of course, Pentagast helped him get elected governor. This leads me to our next side character, Robert E. O'Malley. According to Rudolph Hartman, author of The Kansas City Investigation, Quote, one of Governor Park's first official actions was to name Robert Emmett O'Malley to the important post of State Superintendent of Insurance. So O'Malley is from my hometown, Leavenworth, Kansas. He was born April 12, 1874. He moved to Kansas City in 1897 when he was 23 and opened a cigar business. Tom was the vice president of the cigar company. 
He closed the business in 1925 so that he could go to Ireland to fight the Irish. Um, sorry, to fight the English. Uh, for my non-patron supporters, the intense nationalist zeal held by many Irish immigrants and their descendants for the Irish motherland is something that I discussed with historian Pat O'Neill in my third Patreon episode on Irish history in Kansas City. Well, he wasn't in Ireland very long. He returned to Kansas City in 26, and he opened an insurance company. And, as I said earlier, he became the superintendent of insurance in Missouri in 1935. Alright, so 1935 is the beginning of the end with the fire insurance scam, uh, the origins of, origins of which actually stretch back over a decade. So way back in 1922, the Missouri superintendent of insurance told insurance companies in the state to lower their premiums by 10%. They didn't like that. That meant less money. So they went to court. The Missouri State Supreme Court said, yes, the superintendent has that power. And they really didn't like that. So they took the case to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1928. And they said, yes, he has that power. <laughs> the insurance companies basically said, screw you. And in 1930, they raised their rates by 16 and two-thirds percent. More court battles... But the insurance companies did manage to secure a small win with an injunction that allowed them to collect the monies from the higher rates, but at the same time all those additional funds had to go into an escrow account, a short-term savings account. So you win some, you lose some, I guess. I'm not sure how long it took, but eventually the escrow account held 9 to $11 million. I have different numbers from my sources on that. They want their money, damn it! In walks Alfonso, I'm not sure if I'm saying this right, Liguri, A.L. McCormick, and Charles R. Street. McCormick was the president of the Missouri Insurance Associ Agents Association. Ugh, a little bit of a tongue twister there. And he was friends with Street and Pendergast. Charles R. Street was the vice president of the Great American Insurance Company of New York, head of the Chicago branch of the same company and chairman of the Subscribers Actuarial Committee, quote, a committee which was composed of the officers of the leading fire insurance companies, the rate chargers, and to take care of all matters which affected the companies in common in the Western Territory. Now, there was a Chicago lawyer, R.J. Filoni, who was actually representing the fire insurance companies in court. And he wanted the case to stay in court because he thought the fire insurance companies could win and earn a big payout. But Street, who is incredibly powerful and influential among those insurance companies, he just wanted it to be over with, and he wanted to settle as quickly as possible. So in a series of shady, closed-door meetings between O'Malley, Street, McCormick, and Pendergast, TJ agreed to pressure O'Malley, the superintendent of insurance, to settle the case. O'Malley is Tom's friend and operative. This should have been easy. Street McCormick and Pendergast met in Chicago in January of 35, and Street at this time asked Pendergast to use his influence to convince the powers that be, aka O'Malley, as I said, um, to approve of the rate increase and release the accrued funds to the insurance companies. In return for his help, Tom would receive $200,000. Tommy Boy's like, do you know who I am? And all you offer me is a measly two hundred thousand dollars. 
So straight up the bribe, <coughs> cough, sorry, compensation to $500,000. TJ agrees, deal's made, but nothing happens. So at the end of March, Street offered Tom an additional $250,000, bringing the total up to $750,000. Street made his first down payment in early May. He gave McCormick $50,000, and McCormick gave it to TJ. Maybe this was the holdup. You know, he was like, I don't have my money yet, so I'm not going to do anything for you. Anyway, May 14th, we have the last of these meetings. This one included O'Malley, Street, McCormick, Filoni, and three other attorneys. It's a really big meeting. Um, the other three are, quote, J.T. Baker of Kansas City representing the state's attorney, P.W. Terry of St. Louis representing the Missouri Inspection Bureau, and P.B. McKinney, chief counsel for the insurance department kind of almost wondering if it's a requirement of attorneys that you just go by your initials. I don't know what's going on here. Anyways, um, they met in the Mulebach Hotel in Kansas City. It's a really famous hotel. I think I mentioned it in the Prohibition episode. They finally agreed to a settlement, and the funds would be dispersed as follows. 50% to the fire insurance companies, 30% to a trust fund with Street and Filoni as trustees, and 20% to policyholders. And, quote, out of the 30% trust fund, the Missouri Insurance Department was to receive $200,000 as reimbursement for expenses, the state's attorneys would be paid their fees, and after the insurance company's attorneys had received their fees and after the payment of incidental expenses of litigation, the balance left in the trust fund was be to be distributed to the companies, end quote. All right, so this agreement was delivered to Governor Park, who almost immediately signed it, likely at the behest of Pendergast. Then it was taken to the judges presiding over the case, a Kimbrough Stone, Albert L. Reeves, and a Merrill E. Otis, and they signed off on it in January of 1936. So there's like six-ish months between when the deal was made and when it was uh, approved by the courts. But here's the catch that I think caused the scheme to fall apart. Quote, Street had a clause inserted in the compromise agreement that no accounting of this 30% fund could be demanded, end quote. Obviously, this is where he intended to pay Pendergast. I mean, this was like the source of his bribe. But, quote, later the court, upon approving the settlement, altered this clause to read that no accounting of this trust fund could be required unless the court desired an accounting, end quote. So it's like, okay, we won't look into it unless we're asked to. Spoilers, they get asked to look into it. Meanwhile, uh, while the judges are deliberating, Pendergast received another $50,000 from Street in June of 35. He only kept 5000 for himself, and he gave the other forty-five to McCormick with orders for him to split it between himself and O'Malley. But this is only $100,000, and he was promised $750,000. So where is the other $650,000? In February of 1936, McCormick transported $330,000 from Street in Chicago to Pendergast, Tom kept $250,000 and then told McCormick to split the rest between himself and O'Malley again. 
and he received his final final payment of $10,000 in October of 1936. Now, that still doesn't equal the promised amount, but Street died in February 1938. And why he couldn't finish paying off his bribe in the two years between the last payment and his death, I'm not sure. But it's a lot of money, especially just after the end of the Great Depression, so I imagine it was really hard for him to gather up all of the money. In the end, Pendergast received and kept 400, oh, no, sorry, I take the back. He received $440,000. He kept $315,000. And then McCormick and O'Malley each got $62,500. According to Larson and Holston, he might have gotten away with it if he had paid taxes on the $440,000, but guess what? He didn't. Um, veering on to another track of this tale real quick. Let's put the spotlight back on Pendergast uh, a bit deeper for a moment here. He lived a really lavish lifestyle. He's rich, he's powerful, he's living the high life. Do you all remember that mansion that I mentioned in episode two? <clears throat> Let me describe it for y'all since I failed to do so before. It's French Regency with hints of Italian Renaissance. If you've studied architecture it at all, that will mean something to you, and if not, you'll just have to take my word for it that it means it's very, very opulent. The exterior is red brick, and the front door was wrought iron with, quote, vertical panes of gas, end quote. The exterior featured very expensive wood paneling and wall-to-wall carpet, was decorated in the Louis XV style, which... That's like Richie Rich on steroids. Seriously, if you don't believe me, Google Louis XV decorative style. You'll see what I mean. The master suite covered one-third of the second floor and included a bedroom, a living room, a dressing room, and a bathroom. Quote, the basement recreation room had a large ornate back bar and marble front bar with a marble counter and terrazzo step, end quote. And he bought that, bought the whole bar in New York. The house came up for sale several years ago. I found a listing on Zillow. It's had a lot of renovations since the Pentecost family lived there, but it's still a gorgeous, gorgeous house. I will have images on the website and social media. So in addition to this lavish house, Tom and family were frequent flyers. They traveled all over the world. Uh, their first European trip was a three-month-long tour in the summer of 1927. They went to England, France, Germany, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, Italy, Switzerland, Germany, and Austria. They took um, two other European tours in 1931 and in 1936. Pendergast traveled to Chicago, New Orleans, and New York frequently for business or pleasure, or both. Um, One of my sources said that they never missed the Kentucky Derby. In New York, they would stay at the Waldorf Astoria. No matter where you go, the Waldorf is the nicest, the most expensive hotel you could find. They all wore really nice clothes. Holston and Larson said that Caroline, Marceline, and Aline, that's his wife and his two daughters, shopped at the best park stores, spending huge amounts of money on fine clothes and jewelry, end quote. In 1929, someone was actually ballsy enough to break into their house and stole over $150,000 in jewels, mostly diamonds. Quote, In season, the family went to Saratoga Springs, New York, and other fashionable resorts 
mingling with the highest levels of society, end quote. Although as new money, they weren't always welcomed by the old money families in Kansas City. Um, my sources don't indicate that that's a problem in, in New York, but let's be honest, New York was the center of old money in America. They definitely faced these same challenges where they weren't always welcome. But money opens a lot of doors, then as now. And while Tom's business interests fueled this lavish lifestyle, it would also fueled his gambling addiction. Now, gambling was illegal in the state of Missouri beginning in 19, um, 1881. Uh, additional gambling, anti-gambling laws were passed nationwide during Prohibition. Of course, not that this matters in Kansas City. The city had somewhere between two and 3,000 dealers, bookies, and gamesters, according to Holston and Larson, Tom made as much as $20 million a year from gambling dens and another $12 million a year from prostitution houses and narcotic sales. In 1928, he built the Riverside Jockey Club, also known as Pendergast's Track, Riverside Park, and Riverside Downs in, you guessed it, Riverside, Missouri, which is just a little bit ways north of Kansas City. The track had previously been a dog racing track, and was originally a three-quarter mile track, um, but it wasn't long before they expanded it into a mile-long track. There were two seasons, one in the spring and one in the fall. They each lasted only 30 days, but there were eight races each day. At the height of its popularity, there were as many as 20,000 visitors a day. The track stayed open until 1937. Um, in addition to owning the racetrack, TJ also raised and trained thoroughbreds of his own that he raced at Riverside and at other tracks across the uh, U.S. One of his horses, Bo McMillan, even raced in the Kentucky Derby in 1928. That was pretty cool. Um, unfortunately, he did lose more at the races that he won. It was estimated that he lost $6 million in 10 years. Quote, official court proceedings set Pendergast's race horse wagers in 1935 alone at $2,000,000 with net losses of $600,000, Supposedly, all the funding that he received during the insurance scam he used to pay back his gambling debts. In 1936, so this is a year after the fire insurance scam, there was another voting scandal associated with this machine. Shocking, I know. It's known as the ghost vote election of 1936 because 50 to 60,000 ballots were cast illegally. And since it's called a ghost vote, I'm guessing that these are by people who don't even exist. I don't know. Uh, Tom had a heart attack that year while attending the National Democratic Convention in New York. And the IRS began investigating elements associated with the Pendergast machine. And that will be the end of today's show. I know, I know, I'm leaving you on a major cliffhanger here. The IRS is getting involved, but I have to end it here. I really, really do. Thank you for joining me today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend, rate, and review me on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. The more people who give me a good rating, the easier it will be for others to find me. You can find me online at homegrownkc.wordpress.com. My email is homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com, 
and I am on Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram as Homegrown KC. I know times are hard right now, but if you want to support the show, you can do so by subscribing to patreon.com slash homegrownkc or redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. Here's how it works. You sign up, create an account, subscribe to the show, and you'll be charged on that day, and then you'll be charged on the first of every month afterwards. It's only $5 a month. Everything that you give goes back into the show and pays mostly for my gas as I, you know, travel here and there doing research. If you become a supporter, you will receive a shout-out here on the show. So, let me do that now. Thank you, Mike, Bjorn, and Linda for your support. You will also receive exclusive access to bonus episodes where I interview other historians and um, museum curators and such on the show. Talk about their work, history of Kansas City. It's really cool. Thanks goes out to my very talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, who created my logo. To the Dear Misses for the use of their song, Kansas City, as the intro and outro music of the show. And last but not least, to local libraries who enabled me to gather all my research. Thanks for listening. Seem to get you off my mind.